0: Welcome to our second Media Agenda Talk. Very, very interesting one today, and a very important one, because it's, it's very historical. And um, It was back in... The Bloomberg speech was 2013. Uh, the then Prime Minister of the UK gave a speech in which he promised that he would hold a European... A referendum on our membership of the European Union if he won the next election. And he did this partly... I'm sure because of his faith in the British people and their right to have a a democratic voice. It may also have been because he was under a lot of pressure from UKIP, which is the anti European uh, party here, and within his own party as well. There are a lot of people who are pressing for a much more sceptical stance. So David Cameron agreed uh, to hold a referendum, which of course took place on June 23rd this year. Most of the people, most of the kind of experts, certainly in somewhere like the London School of Economics, thought that the British people would vote to remain uh, in the European Union. I was just showing Lucy an extract from something that I wrote just a few days before the vote. I quote, It's what I thought and said at least two months ago, but I think remain will win by five points. So 52, 47, perhaps more. Ignore all the crap about momentum. There's no such observable thing. The events during the campaign have been equal. And anyway, they almost have no impact. Both sides have been so scurrilous that they've negated their own impact while successfully neutralising their opponents' initiatives. Brexit has won the campaign, but not the vote, because campaigns hardly change anything. I put in brackets after that. Stand by for a massive apology on Friday morning. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so after a referendum night conference where most of my colleagues were saying the same thing, I went to bed. And at 3am I woke up, checked my Twitter feed and realised that you know my life would never be the same again. LAUGHTER um, this institution was going to be affected, but most importantly, as our current Prime Minister Theresa May has said, Brexit does mean Brexit. In a couple of years' time, uh, the UK will no longer be part of uh, the European Union. Now, how the hell did we allow this to happen? How could such an obvious, convincing, rational case for staying in the European Union fail? Well, tonight we've got Lucy Thomas, who is the Deputy Director. Of the Britain Stronger in Europe campaign, who was in charge of trying to make that rational, sensible, progressive case. And she's going to tell us why. So please welcome Lucy Thomas.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much, everybody. I actually came to LSE and did some courses here 11 years ago, uh, so which feels like a very long time. So it's weird to be on this side. Also, thanks to Charlie, I think, for that introduction, although it seems that I have to justify basically why the campaign didn't win. Uh, so lots of responsibility on my shoulders. Um, I start just by saying, actually, going back to that night that Charlie was talking about when we found out what the result was, Nobody really on our side or the other side had seen any data, any of the polling from that day which showed that we were going to lose. So it was as much of a shock to us as it was to the other side. Indeed, Nigel Farage already came out, declared defeat pretty early on, I think around midnight. So really that sense of shock was quite profound and we saw what happened with the markets, the pound, and so on. So I think what will become clear from my presentation is just that lots of sort of received wisdom, lots of trends, um, which we have thought were the case, for example, that it's the economy stupid, that if you run a campaign based on the economic certainty versus an economic risk, you're likely to win. Well, that turned out to be wrong. Also, there was a big chunk of people in the middle of the electorate who both sides were going after. They were undecided. They didn't really care much about the EU. They didn't really know what they thought of it. They disliked it. They had a very big sense of the negative. But even if we were to reach them, we didn't think they would turn out because they hadn't ever turned out before. They certainly weren't registered to vote. And 2.8 million people of that group did turn out this time for the first time ever. So I think lots of received wisdom, as I'm saying, you know, lots of trends, lots of things that we assumed would be the case, like that the 2.8 million people would stay at home or that the economy would trump everything else, all turned out to be wrong. So let me just explain a little bit about my campaign, what we did, why. Uh, This is me. I was the deputy director of the campaign and in charge of all the communications, all of our messaging, devised the brand along with a fantastic ad agency, Adam and Eve, um, right back in the beginning, last summer. Basically, we looked at all of the pro-European organisations which existed. None were sort of fit for purpose none were conceived in order to run a referendum campaign. So we had to start really from basics and work together with ad agencies and did a huge amount of polling. Prior to this campaign, I'd run the pro-European business organisation, Business for New Europe, which was really a coalition of business leaders from all sectors who all believed that we were better off in, and we made a very sort of cold, rational economic case similar to the the case that we made in the campaign. Um, And lastly, and I think relevant for this talk, is that I was a BBC journalist covering EU news for five years. I was based in the BBC Brussels Bureau for four years and then worked on Newsnight and Radio 4 news programmes. So I've sort of seen it from the other side, and I think when I come on to talk about broadcasters in the BBC, um, having had that experience is, is quite useful. So what did people think at the very beginning? Uh, That first tranche of polling that we got in April last year showed that it was pretty close. I'm not entirely sure that people throughout the campaign were conscious of the fact that it was that close because consistently when asked who do you think will win, it was around 70 to 80% of people would assume that we would win the campaign. So there was a real disconnect in terms of what people actually thought and what people thought would be the outcome. And when you factored in turnout back then, when you make assumptions about those people who are likely to stay at home, who's likely to turn out, it really was 50-50. So right from the outset, we were under no illusions that this was going to be a difficult campaign and that we had to really understand where were people, what did they think about the EU. And the overwhelming uh, conclusion from lots of focus groups, lots of research up and down the country was that there was zero love for the EU. There was little understanding. There was a sense that it costs a lot of money, it's really bureaucratic, and decisions are made over there in Brussels. There is no sense that the UK has a voice, has a say over anything. It all felt like things were done to us. It all happened in Brussels, and we had no control over it. There was some sense that it's probably good for business and trade, but people didn't really understand why. And crucially, that didn't link at all to people in their everyday lives. So what does it mean to me and my family? I simply don't know. And when you have none of the positives to fall back on, those negatives really came to the fore. So that was, people were characterised, the people that we had to talk to in the middle, we characterised them as heart versus head, which meant their heart thought, we should just get out. It's annoying, it costs a lot of money, all these decisions were taken. But the head did think it might be too risky. There was a sense that, well, we don't really know what out looks like and what might that mean for the country. And when prompted with some of the facts about the single market, about the fact that businesses can trade freely, that there are 3 million jobs linked to that trade, and so on, you could sort of see people thinking it through and wondering, actually, what is that out? And that led us to come up with a campaign which focused quite heavily on that question of what does out look like. So we called it Britain Stronger in Europe. And this was based on the fact that people did associate strength with working together with other countries. There was a sense that we would be stronger in the world, we would be stronger standing together with other partners. It's fairly rom-seal. I don't know if you're familiar there was a TV advert for a um, sort of lacquer that you paint your fences with in the garden called Ronseal. seal It does what it says on the tin. Basic, there aren't, there's no image. We didn't have an icon, but our thinking was because people did think that we were stronger together, we would emphasise that. Meanwhile, the suggestion was that we would be weaker outside. So that was the name. And the message was that Britain is stronger, safer and better off in Europe than we would be out on our own. Leaving is a leap in the dark, a risk we can't afford to take. So it's quite long. It's quite a mouthful. There are quite a lot of complex things going on in that. The fact that there is strength and safety and prosperity all linked together meant that it was a a broad case to make and you had to explain it quite a lot. And I think when it came to the other side, there was a lot more simplicity. So the, the thinking basically behind the messaging was that these were things that people, once you explained them, would, would agree with. So they'd say, yeah, we probably, yeah, probably are on the yeah, we probably are safer when you sort of share security measures. Um, the better off actually was something that wasn't necessarily understood at the beginning but that then once you started raising that prospect of the risk of leaving and actually what does it look like, it, you could sort of hold people's hands and walk them through. So, so that was it. Uh, and meanwhile, this is what the other side said. Vote leave, take control. Any issue you've got in the world, don't like your job, don't like the government, think our public services are under pressure, think there's too much immigration, Vote Leave, take control. It'll solve them all. And that really was the campaign that we were up against, because they had to argue that the status quo wasn't good enough. That was it. They just had to get you to believe that being in the EU wasn't the right thing, but that leaving would solve all of these issues. And actually, I think they ran a stellar campaign on the basis of the rules such as they exist, they went for it. They absolutely chucked everything at it. And that message was incredibly simple. And it was actually during the campaign, towards the end, when there were the TV debate um, and we were preparing all of our spokespeople. And I was playing the role of Andrea Lexham, who was one of their main spokespeople. And their script was just so simple. Basically, you, you show the patriotism we're Britain, we're great, we're the fifth largest economy in the world, of course, we'll get a good trade deal. And if you think there's too much pressure on public services, you can't get your child into your local school, don't worry, vote leave, take back control. And it was perfect. And actually in that preparation room with all of my colleagues, both the politicians on our side of the argument and all the rest of us who were playing the other roles, it really dawned on us that this is really simple and it's really appealing. If you're watching at home and you're undecided and you're not really sure, it's a really sort of positive vision And you don't need to prove why it's the case that you're going to get back control. It just seems logical, because we are Britain, we are great, and we'll take back control. Meanwhile, our arguments were much more complicated. There was a complex reality, which was the EU, that we needed to explain. And that inevitably took more words, took more time, and took more complexity, because it isn't perfect, and it's far from perfect. And so when you're having to sort of defend something, which is far from ideal, then this is what you come up against. So when it came to the media, this was again, I think, the situation that was pretty unprecedented and that certainly the people on our side of the campaign hadn't seen before. The Conservatives had just swept to power in May 2015. They'd had pretty much all of the papers on their side. They had the levers to pull, if you like, Meanwhile, this was completely the opposite. Six out of the main daily newspapers were for out, and they were really going for it. They were actively campaigning. They were running front-page stories, cut-and-paste press releases from the other side, um, and some even, it got to a stage where some, like the Daily Mail, would say to my campaign, don't bother sending us press releases, don't bother sending us rebuttal, because we're not going to run it. So that is the sense of what we were up against, and it meant that for those people reading those newspapers, they would never have seen anything from our side. It was impossible to reach them via that media because they weren't willing to run something from us, which meant actually that social media was so crucial and we had to really target people and find people where they were. If you're on Facebook, for example, we need to try and get you so that the only thing you see isn't, some Daily Mail headline about immigration or whatever. But it it felt, certainly from a communications perspective, it was the sort of least control I'd ever had, and it just felt really uncomfortable, because just being in a position where you simply cannot get your message out there, it's not a question of whether people believed your message or liked it, they're simply unwilling to run it. And what made it damaging that it was, in particular, the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, was that that's where the undecided voters were? If they were consuming daily news print, it was the Mail and it was the Telegraph. When it came to the broadcasters, I think they had quite a complicated job. Um, there was the Scottish hangover from the Scottish referendum campaign, where, in particular, the BBC had been accused of taking sides. They should have become part of the story almost. And so I think there was. A little bit of unwillingness to take judgment to call out a campaign claim for being wrong because they'd be taken to task there'd be complaints and so really given that they are governed by very strict rules they sort of took that to the letter. so it was all about balance if you had one business person for in they'd have a business person for out which basically made people believe that the, the water was muddy and that it was 50-50. So half of business think in, half of business think out. In reality, when you look at all of the polls, it was more like 80% of businesses were fit in and just 20% for out, similarly with economists, nurses, doctors, you name it, scientists, academics. But because of this problem, it meant that it was all about balance, all about 50-50 and not what's called due impartiality, which I would say was the biggest failing of broadcasters during the campaign, particularly the BBC, because they, they should have given that context and said, you know, if they're running something on science, on academics, on business people, it is incumbent upon them to explain that the overwhelming majority of this particular sector is for in. Yes, here are some dissenting voices, here are people who think that we should leave, but the majority of that sector is for in. And we had so many arguments with the broadcasters on a daily basis. The BBC set up a complaint hotline for us to call um, whenever there was bulletins and so on and so from six o'clock in the morning from quarter to six. Me or my colleagues would be on the phone trying to get some headline changed or try to get some reflection of the fact that you know there needed to be some context. And so it comes down now to the issues of you know what was the campaign, what were the ways in which the media presented it, and really that prism through which people saw the issues. So there are four main uh, issues: the renegotiation, which was sort of the start of the process if you like and it meant that David Cameron was setting a bar for himself to clear and he was saying it's not perfect I'm going to Brussels, I'm going to get some changes, I'm going to make it better It was also seen, if you're a journalist, why wouldn't you see it as Tory infighting This was a fantastic news story It was the first time that cabinet ministers had been allowed to really go for each other, take the gloves off, have a go at each other um, and it was spectacular Everyone said, like, well, hang on a minute, he's, he's in the government and he's saying that th- that Treasury document's basically a lie. This is, you know, amazing. So as a journalist, unsurprising, that this ended up taking a huge amount of the coverage. And there was a recent report done by Oxford University which found precisely that, that the majority of the commentary around the campaign wasn't about the facts. It was about the personalities, it was about the campaigns, it was about the process. And, and Tory inviting is a really good example of that. I think in, in one sense we were a victim of our own success on the economic story. because all of the experts and President Obama and anybody else all came out and made the economic case pretty early. And that meant that in terms of phasing, lots of the media and the broadcasts in particular basically said, well, you guys have won the economic argument. We want something else. We want to be kept interested What's that going to be? Oh, immigration. And it meant that the momentum really went behind immigration towards the end. And it was at a really crucial time where the postal votes were going out. And so when it came to the postal votes, I think I'm right in saying that the postal votes were 55% for out, um, which just shows you. I mean, it's also about the demographics and who are the people who vote postally. But the time that that came was soon after... some really damaging figures for us showing that net migration to the UK was three times over the government's target. So, just some examples. Here is how the Sun and the Mail covered the renegotiation and it meant that our most trusted and most valued messenger at the beginning of the campaign David Cameron, who people did tend to trust. I mean, they, it's interesting, people's views on politicians and messengers generally, they do want to hear from politicians because they sort of know what they're talking about on these things, but equally they don't necessarily trust them always. It was a really sort of odd message you get back in focus groups about who do you want to hear from. But where David Cameron was trusted at the beginning was that he was the Prime Minister. And so, therefore, he's sort of statesmanlike, he works together with these other countries around the world. Yeah, he must have a sense of how it's going. And he was also seen as a sort of pragmatic, realistic guy. And so the, the case that we made, which is sort of, on the one hand, there are negatives, but on balance, we're better off in, it sort of all seemed to fit. But the renegotiation meant that... We had this day after day and it just meant that his credibility was sort of seeping away and it just allowed people to think, well, hang on, he promised us all this stuff, he's going to get all these changes and he hasn't got them. And I think that really, the, the middle of February when... He came back with the renegotiation, I think for those of us on the campaign, it was a real change in tone. And again, it was sort of one of those moments where the momentum was really heading in one direction, and even just getting a hearing was really difficult, and it meant that we very quickly, after the renegotiation had been done, moved it on to, okay, in or out. It's not, is the renegotiation good enough? It's, are we better off in or not? Uh, here's just some examples of the Tory infighting, which is, yeah, I think my favourite is Boris mocking Cameron's totally demented EU scaremongering. Again, I just think completely unprecedented for, although Boris wasn't in the Cabinet, for, for senior party figures to be calling each other demented. Similarly, George Osborne came out with a, a, sort of a theoretical budget for what might happen if we left the EU and the economy was damaged. all saying that he's finished and then there was a, something early on in the campaign Ian Duncan Smith, um, who had been the Work and Pensions Secretary, just laid into George Osborne saying that he was putting rich Tory voters ahead of the working poor. And it just became this <coughs> sort of I was saying, this spectacle where people in the same party, meant to be part of the same government, are all busy slagging each other off. And I think it meant that the issue was a bit tainted. It wasn't seen as okay here's an argument for stuff on one side here's an argument on the other it turned into a personality contest and when you have Boris Johnson the most popular politician by a mile you know making this patriotic British argument versus a Prime Minister and a Chancellor who've been in office for a long time who have colleagues who are willing to flag them off that's not what a referendum should be about So, some examples of us winning the economic case pretty early on, and these experts, which everybody by the end of the campaign didn't want to listen to again, um, we thought this was absolutely perfect. We thought this is precisely what we needed to be doing. These are experts. They know what they're talking about. If they're saying that the economy is going to be damaged, that it's going to be affected, surely people will listen to that. So, the Bank of England, Governor Mark Carney, he was always very measured, he was always very careful, but he would spell out that there was the possibility of a technical recession, lower material growth, potentially unemployment, those kind of things. Christine Lagarde, similarly, she came to the UK um, and it was clear, she said the impact on the economy would be bad, very, very bad and President Obama came over and explained that we would be at the back of the queue when it came to trade deals. So this all happened fairly early in the campaign, and as I was saying, I think broadcasts, in particular the BBC, said to us, well, you basically, you've won the economic argument, so we need something else to keep ourselves interested, and that was when immigration became a huge issue. The 330,000 figure came out showing that the government was not going to meet its target on immigration and so long as we're in the EU we couldn't control free movement and that to me has always been the hardest part of our argument because you have to basically explain that it's a package, that there may be some elements that people don't like and instinctively people think there should be control of free movement it seems so counterintuitive that you would just have free movement from Europe, whereas you can have controlled immigration from the rest of the world. And so we had headlines like this, 1.6 million migrants from the EU, in Britain, and it also allowed Nigel Farage to come into his own and really exploit the immigration issue and sort of not really mind about blurring the boundaries. These people (coughs) that you see behind him in his poster are Syrian refugees in, I think, Hungary. So nothing at all to do with the the UK. We're not in Schengen. I mean, so far removed from anything that would happen in the UK, and yet it was just an opportunity for them to exploit people's fears, people's anxieties. And similarly, the Turkey issue was one of the main issues that the Leave campaign leapt upon and said, basically, Turkey is joining the EU, which is not true. but in a referendum these things don't seem to matter and actually this is where the media plays such an important role because they have to call it out they have to be the fact checkers there is no powers for the electoral commission or anybody else to sort of say hang on a minute are these campaigns telling the truth and i think that's what when you see these kinds of headlines day after day and they're based on Untruth. that's pretty hard to take, and as I was saying, when you can't then regain the momentum, when there's nothing that you can do in order to change that, you realise that the people reading these, well, they're going to believe it, aren't they? So yeah, this is just an example of, um, I was just playing this before, and Zane's Charlie, it still makes my blood boil the level of sort of disingenuousness in this, but I'm going to play it to you. It's the Vote Leave referendum broadcast where they're a really, real good example of trying to just exploit those fears about a number of countries which are not joining the EU. That's just to be clear. Every week we send £350 million to Brussels. Money that's wasted. That's enough to build a new hospital every week. It will get worse The euro is broken, and the EU plans to let in another five countries. Imagine what will happen when you're paying the euro bailouts. Imagine what will happen to public services when Albania, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Turkey join the EU. Imagine our money being spent on our powerhouses. You can make this happen. This might be our last chance. So, vote leave on
0: the 23rd of June. Let's
1: take that control. Yeah. So, how many errors did you spot in there? So along with the fact, these red arrows, really, really emotive, really trying to get people's backs up, get people scared about all these countries, these 88 million people all flooding, um, but also the £350 million pounds a week, which can be spent immediately on our NHS again. That has sort of crumbled fairly quickly after the campaign ended. Um, But, you know, an example of a campaign pushing the boundaries and saying something. Nobody challenged them. The um, electoral commission, the broadcasters all ran that. That went into people's homes. It was on all of the main TV channels. And there is no challenge to it. So in a way, good for them for you know, running a pretty ruthless campaign. But quite difficult to take when you're on the other side. I'll play this if we've got time at the end. But yeah, so just coming back to this sort of fact, do they even matter anymore? I'm not entirely sure. Um, But this is just the best example, and it was something which featured on pretty much all the news bulletins, all of the Leave campaign's main spokespeople went and did visits on this bus. And it had that very clear slogan on the side that we send 50 million a week to the EU and that it could all come back and fund the NHS. Now, both the UK Statistics Authority and the um, Treasury Select Committee challenged them and said this is misleading or it's highly misleading and that they should repaint the bus. But this didn't happen because there was no authority who could force it to happen. And we had a sort of running... Uh, Argument with the BBC about them even featuring footage of this bus because it was incorrect. So either when they ran it, they should have some kind of explanation, some kind of voiceover explaining that it had been challenged or some kind of on-screen text or something. But because it was unprecedented, this hadn't really been seen in any election campaign before, nothing happened. And from the BBC's perspective, they just said, well, this is what this campaign is saying. Yes, you can challenge it, but we don't have to do that every time we run it. So it just became that a blatant lie on the side of a bus was allowed to just take hold and, and be everywhere. And I think for future lessons, I think if there were to be a referendum on, on such an issue, I think there has to be some way of you know really calling that into question. And you know, somebody somewhere fact-checking. Again, the the Turkey is joining the EU, that's another um, sort of vote league poster, which, you know, just didn't really get challenged. Um, So I think the same sort of lesson applies there. And I think the, the experts thing was really a shock to us because one of our massive strengths was the fact that we had this whole range of experts on our side I don't know if you can see them all there, but from the left, it's um, Brandon Barber who used to run the biggest trade union um, organisation, Stephanie Flanders, who's a hugely respected economist, Alan Sugar of The Apprentice, sort of well-known business figure, Stephen Hawking. How can you not believe Stephen Hawking? Who better is there in the whole world than Stephen Hawking to explain why we should remain in? Um, Also not on here, David Beckham, David Walliams, James Corden, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Shami Chakrabarti of Liberty and George Robertson, who used to run NATO. So that whole breadth of opinion, that breadth of experience from all walks of life, all saying that we're better off in, uh, which we then turned into a poster. So the lettering is all tiny, but it's deliberately so. That is basically everybody, all the bodies, all the well-known people who supported us versus the expert, experts pushing leaving, we'll go back to you. And yet, this was turned into a strength by the Leave campaign because they painted it as basically the establishment, the elite, the people who think they know better than you, telling you what to think. And so it really flipped everything on its head because in elections previously, experts had been believed and it's it sort of seemed logical on the basis of our original research that people did want to hear from all of these experts who sort of know about the issue. But there was a particular moment in one of the TV debates where Michael Gove, um, one of the leading figures on the Leave campaign, said, I think we've had enough of experts. And that really stuck with all of us because it it was basically like a post- post-expert world, and and they made it out to be, well, it's you, the voter, you know, you're the one that um, gets to decide this. So just um, to sum up, really, lots of lessons to be drawn from all of those issues. Uh, I think the number one most sort of brutal and painful for those of us uh, on our side of the argument is that they are ruthless. And because there isn't you know, anyone doing the, the sort of fact-checking all the time, it just allows campaigns to, to say fairly outlandish things. And they also sell them on the issue asked. So whatever issue people want to put into the pot, do you like David Cameron or George Osborne or do you prefer Boris Johnson? I'm sure a lot of people who went out to vote voted on that basis. And clearly that is not what the issue on the actual ballot paper was. One of the you know, massive lessons and one of the shocks really here was that the status quo didn't prevail. And in referendums, if you look over the past, whether it was the AV referendum a couple of years ago here, albeit on kind of an arcane voting system, or the Scottish referendum again, you know, the, the status quo prevailed. Similarly in lots across Europe on European issues, the status quo has pretty much tended to win. Thirdly, that it isn't the economy stupid, that all of our research showing us that the economy was really the most important thing. When it came to people making up their mind, what is going to drive that vote? What's going to, A, drive their (coughs) decision-making? Is it going to be, oh, might I lose my job? Might my pound in my pocket be worth less? And so on. That turned out not to be the most important thing. It was immigration, public services, all sorts of other issues. I think for me, again, it's, it's a pretty personal one on the basis of that experience, of seeing those headlines, of seeing those broadcasts, of seeing news day after day, which is just simply untrue. and Lots of media felt unable to sort of call it out, to use their editors to say, this campaign is claiming this, but this proves that it's incorrect. It ended up being, this campaign claims this, the other campaign claims that. So you don't ever have that sort of independent expertise of the news outlet saying, "I'm calling this out." That I think the the perception of our campaign is that we weren't listening to people's concerns, and so that's where the immigration argument really took hold on the other side because they felt that we weren't listening. So our message on immigration was pretty complicated, but it was basically that. We understand that there are concerns over immigration. We understand that there are concerns over pressures on public services. But you don't control immigration by crashing the economy. I mean, it's a fairly unsubtle segue back into our core message about the economic risk. Um, But it sounded to people like we didn't care about their immigration concerns. And, And I think for future campaigns, you have to really start where people are. You can't seem like you're talking from the top down and that you're. Sort of dismissing people. Um, and lastly, this, this sort of rebuilding of respect for experts. I'm not entirely sure that we can rebuild respect for experts, but it, I worry, looking, for example, across the Trump campaign in the US, both that the willingness to just make completely outlandish claims, but also to just sort of dismiss that expertise. Um, and I, I just think it could be quite dangerous in terms of future campaigns and making sure actually that people are sort of making that decision on the basis of the facts. Because we've seen so many polls since June the 23rd, where people have either said, you know, I didn't really understand what I was voting on or if I had a chance again, I changed my mind. And I think that is, um, you know, one of the biggest lessons that it's incumbent on all of us, both from the campaign perspective and the media um, and all other sort of bodies, to make sure that people do feel informed. And it, it's obviously very difficult and everyone tries to put out their sort of so-called facts, but for the biggest sort of political constitution, constitutional issue to have been decided on the basis of half-truth personality contests, it just—it leaves me sort of quite disappointed with with the way that that happened. So that's it for me, um, and I'm very willing to take all of your questions.